Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This time, Boris Johnson goes to India and hails a new and expanded defence partnership. What I think we've seen here in New Delhi is one of the world's oldest democracies and uh, the world's largest democracy sticking together and confronting our shared anxieties about autocracies and autocratic coercion around the world. Except India has refused to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Nearly two-thirds of Indian defence equipment comes from Russia. Uh, People still see Russia as a very reliable partner and therefore there's some kind of an emotional sympathy and emotional vote for Russia. So why is the UK doing defence deals with Delhi right now? Is India trying to play off Moscow with London? Or does the UK have its own game plan here? In Ukraine, the war goes on with seemingly little change in the balance of power. But do explosions in neighbouring Moldova suggest the conflict is spreading? If, for example, Russia uses the pretext of genocide being conducted from uh, Moldova towards the Russian-speaking population in Transnistria, that would really cause an alarm bell. And we meet the leader of Iraq's all-female mine clearance team. So personally, the most important thing for me from this work is uh, because my brother had died from an IED, so it's really a sensitive uh, thing to me. India has the world's second largest army. It is one of the planet's top five defence spenders alongside the UK. And of course, there are historic links between India and Britain. So it seems logical that as part of Boris Johnson's post-Brexit Global Britain plan, he would look to strengthen defence as well as trade ties on his visit to India. It also fits with the integrated review's tilt to the Indo-Pacific. We've agreed to work together to meet new threats across land, sea, air, space and cyber, including partnering on new fighter jet technology, maritime technologies to detect and respond to threats in the oceans. Underscoring the deal, Defence Equipment Minister Jeremy Quinn and the Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Satani Radakin, then visited India's Defence Minister. Normally, this might not have raised too many eyebrows, but while London is sanctioning Moscow and sending weapons to Ukraine, India is one of 40 countries that refused to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine as illegal at the United Nations. So why is the UK doing a defence deal with a country that isn't prepared to back the global majority against Russia's invasion? To address that question, it helps to understand India's position. I asked Shushant Singh, senior fellow at the Centre for Policy Research in Delhi, why India abstained in the UN vote. Three reasons. One is defence supplies. Nearly two-thirds of Indian defence equipment comes from Russia. India is dependent for spares, for supplies, for everything, whether it is the S-400 system or the BrahMos missiles or nuclear submarines which Russia leases to India, which no other country would give to India. So number one, it is defence supplies. Number two, India and Russia or Moscow or erstwhile Soviet Union have had a historically very strong strategic relationship that goes back to the Cold War era. Uh, people still see uh, Russia as a very reliable partner and therefore there's a, some kind of an emotional sympathy and emotional vote, uh, vote for Russia. And also uh, Indian, defense, Indian foreign minister has clearly said that the crisis is in Europe, it is not in Asia. And yet India has condemned the killings in Butcher. Is the Indian government's position shifting do you think? 
The Indian condemnation of killings in Bucha was very guarded. It actually did not name Russia at all. That was a very significant difference from the condemnation which was done by London or by Washington DC. The fact that India does not name Russia is the, is the thing that counts. Uh, and clearly, as you rightly said, the position is shifting, uh, but shifting very subtly and only shifting because of Western pressure. Uh, India, Indian ministers were about to have a 2 plus 2 meeting in DC with the American Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State. And clearly, this was a concession uh, made, made mm. to them. But it, but it was not enough, a, enough of a concession if it did not name and blame Russia. Can India really afford to say, this is a war in Europe, it doesn't concern us? Uh, personally speaking, no, because the principles that apply, whether it is territorial integrity or sovereignty, actually apply more to India, especially because of what China is doing on, on India's borders. And that is something which India should stand up for, because those are the principles which would help India if China continues to do what it, what, what it is doing. So it is surprising that India has uh, refused to actually stand up for those principles. Boris Johnson said on his visit to India, he didn't think things have ever been as strong or good between us as they are now. Is that how India sees it? No, I think uh, Indian, Indians would, would want to believe that the relationship with UK is good, but not good enough. And when I say not good enough is Indian demands, as you saw from Prime Minister Boris Johnson's visit, were, you know, India wants more defense technology, India wants to do more defense manufacturing in India and would want uh, British defense, defense manufacturers to come and come and work in India. Indian government wants more visas from Britain. Indian government wants no criticism at all on its human rights record, whether in Kashmir or elsewhere or on Indian Muslims. You know, it does not want any British support for democratic protests in India, which you see in, in British Parliament and various parliamentary committees. You know, things uh, that, that these, these are the kind of things which make the current Indian government very uncomfortable. So while, uh, you know, things are good, it is something that in the current Indian government would want uh, things to be better if the UK were to look away on these issues. You mentioned earlier India's arms in imports from Russia. About half of, of those imports come from Russia. But with this deal, is India trying to play off Russia and the UK? Uh, not exactly playing off Russia and the UK because Russia, as you said, is the number one supplier considering the legacy equipment that is in, uh, that is in the Indian Armed Forces. Uh, but yes, India is using this as a reason or as an excuse to build its own uh, defense manufacturing base and is you know, telling most of the Western countries, whether it is the UK or France or the United States, that, you know, why don't you come and build some defense equipment within India, and then India would be buying much lesser from Russia. So it is essentially uh, using this moment, this opportunity to make a case for more indigenous defense manufacturing within India, rather than playing UK against Russia or US against Russia. Shu Singh from the think tank, the Center for Policy Research. Well, Professor of Defense Studies, Michael Clark is with us. And Michael, what is Boris Johnson's motivation in this deal? Is it about trade? Is it about military advantage? Or could it be about trying to weaken Russia's influence on India? Yes, I think it was about a lot of those things. The, the trade actually is what is what grabs the headlines in Britain, but actually trade's neither here nor there between Britain and India. They're 15th or 16th in the league for, for our trading partners. However, on the defence field, that's, as always, is the area where there's something specific to talk about. And there, I think, there has been some real progress, uh, certainly in the high-tech end of things, which may turn out to be quite useful. And you can't only work with countries you agree with on everything, because in that case, no deals would be done. So is it reasonable for the UK to put aside this difference on Russia? 
Well, I think it is in this case, because clearly Nahendra Modi, the Prime Minister, and his government have taken a view that they will not condemn Russia. But I don't think that's necessarily the way other political parties react in India or the way the people react. I mean, I've been keeping an eye on the headlines and some of the stories in the Hindustan Times and the Times of India recently. And although there is no great condemnation of Russia in those newspapers, there is actually plenty of reporting of the, the drama of Mariupol and the problems of Butcher and so on. So it isn't as if the, the population of India, unlike the population of China, are not aware of what is going on in Ukraine. So I think it's reasonable for Britain to try to, as it were, deal with India because Modi, if he sees that the West will prevail in Ukraine, he'll click back over, I think, to supporting the Western position at some point in the future if he thinks that, that Russia is going to lose. Well, I mentioned earlier that India has the world's second largest army. It's grown nearly 40% over the last two decades to make it about 1.4 million people strong. But recently, it's been shrinking with 60,000 people leaving every year and a hiring freeze imposed during the pandemic. And there are signs that hiring freeze could be extended. But why? Former Indian Army Major Anit Mukherjee is now Associate Professor of the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. 65% of the defense budget goes for its personal cost. There is enormous expenditure of the defense budget on pay, allowances and pension. Because you spend as much on personal cost, you're not able to spend as much on military, like the modernization and transformation. And because of this factor, there's an urgent need. And I think an acknowledgement within the government from an economic perspective, it makes total sense for India to decrease the size of the army in particular. Why is India's army so big at the moment? Uh, so that's a really good question. I think if you ask those people who serve in the armed forces, their answer is India has a big army because India has a two-front problem. It has to deal with a problem posed by Pakistan and it has to deal with a problem posed by China. Um, and I think a part of the problem is that the senior army leadership has taken a pretty unimaginative approach to solving the problem posed by Pakistan and China. So they thought about the threat posed by both countries and they just increased the expenditure on manpower and personnel, which I think um, was not the best way to address the issue because as you spend more on the personal cost, you have less budget available to you for the military modernization. And what does India see as the threat posed by China? I think, as it was evident over the last two years, the primary threat posed is along the disputed border, along the line of actual control. Um, during the beginning days of the COVID pandemic, the PLA intruded into what India considers to be its area in the Ladakh region. And this has started the most consequential border dispute between the two countries. So bottom line, I think India is threatened by the border dispute, but also it is threatened by the rise of China and the Chinese military power. You allude to the need to free up money for things like new technology. How much of a difference do you think shrinking the army would make? I think it would make a significant difference. Just to give another example, if we look at the amount of expenditure available in the armed forces, only 30% of it goes for capital acquisitions. And so I think if, if India decides to cut down the size of the army, that should automatically free up a lot of the budget for um, new emerging technologies.
Former Indian Army Major Anit Mukherjee, Michael Clark, in cold, hard dollars, India spends the same sort of order of money on defence as the UK. It clearly has a very different balance of how it spends it. How does it rank in terms of military capability and power? Uh, well, not nearly as high as it should, because a lot of its spending is really very inefficient. As Major Mukherjee uh, analysed there, he's got a two-front problem with China and Pakistan to worry about, and also Kashmir, and the problem of terrorism, which is much higher in India than it is in most European uh, countries. And the Army, Navy and Air Force in India do their own thing. They're very, there's very little coordination between them. So they've got this really inefficient set of systems. They've got far too many different sorts of systems. There's not much interoperability between their own forces. They don't operate in a very combined way. And as Major Mukherjee says, they're far too dependent on personnel. So the personnel equipment balance is way out of kilter. So the Indians have got a long way to go to slim and streamline their forces down to something much more attuned to what they really need, which is where Britain can actually have some useful impact in technical um, conversation with India. I mean, India is trying to get into the aircraft carrier business now. They've got one aircraft carrier operating. They're planning on two more in a few years' time. They're trying to get into the uh, uh, nuclear submarine business, nuclear-powered submarines. They're trying to get into different sorts of air power. They've got good aircraft in India. Um, and they operate them fairly well, but they don't operate them in a very coordinated way. So talking to Britain would be British defence chiefs is a good way to help them streamline their forces, because what they need is not a force that looks like America or a force that even looks like China. They need a force that looks more like very competent European forces, but on a much bigger scale. That's really what they're aiming for. And it will take them a decade to get to that. Well, let's now turn our attention fully to the war in Ukraine. Michael, several developments to talk about around the war, including events in neighbouring Moldova. But just update us on the situation on the ground over the last week. Has much changed? Uh, not really in the last week. This um, uh, offensive has been launched in the Donbass, where the Russians are trying to draw a, a line between Kharkiv, the second city, down to Mariupol and as we catch the um, Ukrainian armed forces on the wrong side of that line to encircle them, in effect, east of that line. But that's a big line to draw. And so in the last week, they've been trying to push down a slightly shorter line from Izium towards Donetsk, and they're not making much progress. Um, the places they're really aiming for, and this will be the big shift if it takes place in the next week, is Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. Those are the two places that are the key to controlling most of the Donbass area that they're now interested in. So if Kramatorsk and Slavyansk as well fall to them in the next week or 10 days, then that will be a big step. Yeah, uh, Russia claims to have destroyed a hangar uh, housing weapons sent by the US and Europe near Zaporizhia. We also see mm. reports of a Russian ammunition depot in Belgorod on fire. How much will these dent each side's capability? Yeah, they're going for different targets here. The, the, the Russians clearly are trying to affect the infrastructure of reinforcement for the Ukrainians, and they're trying to affect the oil supplies to directly to Ukrainian forces. Whoever's responsible for these explosions going on in Russia in, and Belgorod and north of Moscow in research establishments, it's a bit more random, actually. You can't quite detect a, a single strategic requirement in this. But whoever's doing this is obviously trying to affect Russia's 
Russia's deeper logistics rather than their immediate supply routes into the Donbass. Having said that, Belgorod is quite close to the front line, and so anything that happens there, the, the, the railway line's been attacked at least twice, to my knowledge. That does have mm. a direct effect on Russia's attempt to bring more forces in from Kiev in the north and then feed them back into the Donbass. Michael, you talked the day after the invasion about the risk of contagion to neighbouring Moldova, a former Soviet state where there is a Russian-backed breakaway region, Transnistria. There have been explosions in Transnistria this week, including at the state security headquarters, radio masts used to broadcast Russian news, and at a military unit. Add to this comments about Transnistria from a senior Russian officer it's renewed questions about whether Russia also wants to annex that territory from Moldova. Uh, this is what Armed Forces Minister James Heapy told us about that possibility. I mean, I'd simply reflect that they're struggling to get past Mariupol. So that feels outrageously ambitious. And I think if they even tried it to open up, you know, if they haven't learned their lesson yet, that fighting on too many fronts with inadequate logistics for all of those different axes of, of advance just means they end up being defeated, then God help them. But um, you know, if they want to try and do a left hook from Crimea towards Odessa and Transistria, then they're just going to find that they get picked off by the Ukrainians in the Donbass and there, because once again, they failed to concentrate combat power. Michael, bearing in mind those explosions actually targeted the Russian-backed authorities of Transnistria, what do you think is going on there? One suggestion is these were false flag operations from Moscow trying to stoke some further uprising in Transnistria. Yes, I mean, that would be my view as well. We don't know, of course, but I think a false flag operation is the most logical explanation. It's, it, it doesn't do the Ukrainians any good to destabilise Transnistria and Moldova. So you always ask the question, well, who benefits from this? And those who benefit would be Russian politicians and around Putin who are trying to create another element of insecurity in Moldova. Remember Moldova, I mean, those of us who remember A-level history will remember mm -hmm. this is Bessarabia. And this territory is bounced in and out of of. Romanian and Russian or Soviet control over the last 300 years. And so it's it's ethnically Romanian, but with a big dose of, of Russian ethnicity within it. And to destabilize Moldova would actually add another element in Putin's narrative that what this war is all about is to protect the Russians from this constant NATO aggression against Russia and its peoples. And whether they, you know, militarily, I don't think the Russians can reach Moldova at the moment, but to, to throw another sort of wobbler onto the table, as it were, for, for mixing my metaphors. But, um, you know, if Putin can create another area of concern, then the way he, he reacts to crises is he thinks, well, I'll be able to make something out of that. It will actually increase the need to push my forces as far as Moldova. But of course, then we'll find that, that they, Russia has effectively invaded another state in Europe, not just Ukraine, but destabilized Moldova in exactly the same way as it destabilized Ukraine um, and has now tried to invade it as a result of that destabilization. Now, even just two months in, one of the legacies of the Ukraine conflict is thousands of unexploded bombs and shells. It's thought to be the biggest volume of deadly ordnance scattered in Europe since the Second World War. It's common to most conflicts. Removing all mines from the Falklands, for example, took nearly 40 years. In Iraq, clearance teams are removing improvised bombs, IEDs, left behind by the Islamic State terror group. One team with the mine clearance charity FSD is a little different. It is entirely made up of women, a deliberate decision by the charity. 
The team in Erbil is led by Asma Khalil Ibrahim. She told me about her work with the help of FSD's operation assistant, Sally Munir. My first thing to do in the daily basis is giving the morning brief. Every morning, I tell the team to take uh, precautions and to be safe. The safety is the first and the last thing for us. So uh, my point about safety is like having the SOP, standard operation procedures. For example, the distance between each female uh, member in the team, how much it should be. Also for our radios that we are using during our operation, we need to check them before starting our operation. My first responsibility, like I'm also going into the hazard area, checking the hazard area to see everything is good for the team to go in. Uh, And I keep like uh, visualizing and watching the team members to see what they are doing. So the deminers, they are going to the uh, hazard area. They are using the detectors to check the hazard area. So if they hear any noise from the detector, they usually call me to the field and I go to check if the noise is the real thing which they saw in the place that they are searching in it. How did you become involved in this kind of work? FSD, they request a female team. So I heard from one of our related that uh, there's an open position there for a female deminer. I applied for it. Then I did a course in Suleimani uh, for the deminers. And uh, that's how I started working in this job. And what were you doing before? Uh, before doing this job, I was a tailor, which I was designing clothes and such kind of thing. And when I saw this job opportunity, I directly applied for it. And why did you want to join FSD when you were told about the job opportunity? What was it about it that attracted you? So personally, I know that I will get money from it, but uh, actually the most important thing for me from this work is uh, because my brother had died from an IED, so it's really a sensitive uh, thing to me. Uh, it really like helped me to change my personality and make me stronger because the, from the day that my brother passed away till now, I always like thinking of him. So for me to do this job, I'm helping other people to not face the thing that I did face it. I'm really sorry to hear about your brother. Would you mind just telling me a little bit about what happened? So uh, his friend called him and they told him that to come and rescue them because ISIS, they were arrested them. So he went and he got some uh, help from the defense ministry. Uh, he saved them and he came back. After that, another group, he uh, they called him and t- told him to save them as well. He went uh, to other team. And the way he went to them, there was a trap from ISIS uh, with a big IED there. It exploded and he died with his uh, friends there. Sorry to hear that. What kind of a man was your brother? So my brother was so strong. He had a very strong personality. And for me, as a team leader now, I really took him as an idol for me. 
like uh, he's really my idol. I really like uh, seeing him in front of me. So I'm trying to be as strong as he was. And what do your friends and family think about what you do, about your job? Uh, uh, my friends, uh, they really support me and I really do support them. Like if they want to join me, I tell them like, yes, go for it. It's hard at the beginning, but you can do it. But for my family, it's really hard for me to tell them. At the beginning, I didn't tell my dad because my dad was afraid that the same thing that which has happened to my brother will happen to me. He knows now, but always uh, like he's telling me to be safe, like to protect myself, uh, because he's really afraid that uh, the thing that happened to my brother, which which maybe will happen to me. It is a very male-dominated area of work. Is it important to you to be seen as a woman and encourage other women into the job? Or for you, is it simply about making sure the mines are cleared and making Iraq safer? We, as an Iraqi people, we usually see uh, males that are working in this field. So it's really hard for a female to do this job. But uh, because I love to do this job and I see myself strong enough to do it. And for the females that they want to do this job, they need to be really strong. They need to have passion about doing this job. They need to have an aim behind this job. So this is what uh, are the things that make me do it. And just finally, um, what do you like most about the job? So my aim behind this job is um, to help other people to not face the thing that I face it, to not go uh, in a thing that I go through it. While I'm like removing an IED, maybe this IED maybe will be a reason behind another person die. So this uh, is my motivation to do this job. Sally, thank you so much for interpreting Asma's story for us. Can I ask you, as operations assistant, to tell us about FSD's work in Iraq? How big and busy is your demining operation? Uh, first, thank you so much. Uh, actually, we have a really big uh, family here. We all know that there's an aim behind it. It's a very humanitarian job. Currently, we have nine uh, clearance teams, one mechanical team, uh, plus uh, two NTS EORE team. So all these teams are working to save people. We have uh, about 150 deminers, uh, operators, drivers working in the field, and we have more than 25 person here in the office. So we are really a big family, and we are working very hard for achieving our aim. Well, how widespread is the threat from mines and IEDs in Iraq? For me, at the beginning, I didn't imagine what I will see or what I will go through. And even like when I start uh, my first few months, I didn't thought that there's an IEDs like this here in Iraq. Uh, as you know, I'm living in Kurdistan. Maybe it's a bit different than the people who are living in Iraq. Like uh, when I saw uh, the number of, of IEDs that they did uh, RSP for it, the numbers of uh, areas that they cleared. I really get impressed. There's a lot. There's a lot of IEDs, a lot of hazard areas here in Iraq. Sally, really good to speak to you. Sally Munir and Asma Khalil Ibrahim, thank you so much for your time. This is Zidrep. 
before we go, let's get a final thought on Ukraine, where, as we speak, Michael, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is visiting the capital, Kyiv. The war is evil. Our heart, of course, stays with the victims. Our condolences to their families. There is no way a war can be acceptable in the 21st century. Well, two things stand out from what he said there. Number one, he calls it a war, rejecting Russia's language of special military operation. And two, the word evil. This feels uh, pretty unprecedented, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, Guterres was pretty tough, actually. I mean, all the criticism that he was going to uh, see Putin first, he, I think he deflected by showing that he wasn't just going to smile and talk about peace. He pushed back on the Russian position on all of this, which reflects, I think, the fact that although we're concentrated now on this more limited military fighting that's going on in southeast uh, Ukraine, it is actually very important because the stakes, the political stakes are getting higher and higher. And we've talked in this program about India and India's strategic relationship with the United States and Britain and China. And in a way, I think, you know, what we're facing is that the war in Ukraine is the is the tip of the iceberg of a bigger global competition between the autocrats and dictators and those in the liberal democracies who are trying to hold on to the current global international order and the rules and and laws of that order, which Gutierrez, I think, was trying to express there. And so this competition is now becoming clearer whether it will become a, a struggle, go from a competition to a struggle, and what form that struggle will take, we don't really know. But I think a lot of that will be determined by whatever happens in the next six months in Ukraine. And that is all for now. My thanks to you, Professor Michael Clark, and all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And you can catch up with past programs on the website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.